This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families. Well, welcome back to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. So glad you're able to take the time to join us each month. And we're recording this in the spring of 2020, where most of the nation is taking precaution to mitigate risk and exposure to the coronavirus. And again, we hope you are safe, healthy, and taking what time you can to care for yourself and your families. This episode continues our conversations surrounding the Family First Prevention Services Act and how child welfare agencies and jurisdictions are developing their Title IV-E prevention plans. Now, in early March of 2020, the Children's Bureau hosted a webinar titled Title IV-E Prevention Plan Implementation Updates. And this was to share the lessons and experiences from two jurisdictions, Washington, D.C. and Utah, whose prevention plans have been developed and approved by the Children's Bureau. Now, the webinar could only handle about 500 participants, so lots of you were not able to be part of the conversation which is why we're sharing the audio from that webinar here on the podcast. Now, part one shared the portion of the webinar where participants learned their perspectives and approaches from D.C. and Utah in developing their plans. So, hey, go ahead and listen to that episode. Check it out. It's live, now available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud. This is part two, the second half of the webinar. Here, the Children's Bureau shared a series of tips to aid jurisdictions as they developed their plans with their stakeholders and partners. And the representatives from DC and Utah also answered questions from those folks who were able to attend the webinar. So the tips are addressed by a few folks that you're gonna hear from. Dory Snedden and Kara Kelly from the Children's Bureau's central office. Tina Nogler, she is the Director of Regional Programs for the Children's Bureau. You'll also hear Dr. Jerry Milner, the Associate Commissioner of the Children's Bureau, and Elaine Stett, she is the Director of the Children's Bureau's Office of Child Abuse and Neglect. And of course, also you'll hear Brenda Donald, the Director of Washington, D.C.'s Child and Family Services Agency, and Cassette Mills, the Federal Operations Administrator from the Utah Division of Children and Family Services. So they will answer questions that were posed by webinar participants. So without further ado, here is part two of the Title IV-E Prevention Plan Implementations Update webinar, starting off with Dory Snedden, kicking off tips to support jurisdictions as they develop their prevention plans. Today we'll be providing tips in the areas of service selection, child safety, continuous monitoring and evaluation, as well as a review of resources um, related to the independent systematic review process and the Title IV Clearinghouse. And finally, we'll briefly discuss the review process and working with the regional office and members of the integrated team. Um, so first I'll provide a few tips related to service selection. Um, so the first technical tip in this area addresses allowable programs and services. Allowable programs or services include two categories. The first um, are those that have been rated by the Title IV Clearinghouse as promising, supported, or well-supported. Um, and this information is provided on the Clearinghouse website. Um, the second category of allowable programs or services are those that have been approved, have an approved designation 
um, through the independent systematic review process. And this information is provided on the Children's Bureau Title IV Prevention Program website. Um, to note, adaptations of EVPs are allowable, but they have to have their own review and approval to meet one of the two criteria above. Um, tip two is one that Cosette mentioned. Um, it's a technical tip um, in the areas based on feedback that CB has commonly provided to submitted plans. And that's that the prevention plan should include information about the book, manual, or other available documentation for each program or service which the state is requesting claiming reimbursement. Um, this is, this is uh, basically a reference. Um, and for programs that have been approved or rated by, and rated by the Clearinghouse, this information is directly available on the Clearinghouse website. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, and finally, the third tip in this area is related to claiming. Um, we heard from DC and from Utah the importance of um, really thinking about the needs in your state and um, the larger prevention continuum. Once the Title IV agency has identified programs and services that they want to include um, in their prevention continuum, there are multiple strategies states can take in developing their Title IV prevention program plan. Similar to DC's approach, states can provide a broad picture of the overall prevention continuum to include both programs and services for which the agency is requesting claiming as well as programs in the larger prevention continuum. Um, the tip here and, and kind of the important point is just that the agency has to really closely follow the preprint and be clear about which programs and services the agency is requesting for reimbursement. Um, and on this next slide is really just a reference um, for a, a kind of an ease of reference. Um, we're providing really specific information, just how to locate the book, manual, or available documentation for each program or service, as discussed on the previous slide. Um, and then also, how to find the status of submitted independent systematic reviews to claim transitional payments, um, also discussed on the previous slide. Um, just to note, CB, um, our website um, on the Title IV Prevention Plans, um, it, it uh, includes all links to relevant documents. Um, next, I'll provide some technical tips on safety monitoring. So this next area of prevention plans is monitoring child safety. The tips included are in two areas. The first is monitoring child safety during the 12-month service period. And the second is reexamination of a child prevention plan. Um, tip one is that the prevention plan should include information specific as to how the Title IV agency will complete periodic risk assessments during the 12-month period. For, for example, this can include instruments or protocols used for monitoring child safety, time periods or intervals for assessment, and the relationship with the um, contracted providers in assessing child safety. Um, next, tip two, um, the Title IV prevention plan should include information on how the child's prevention plan will be re-examined if the state determines the risk of the child entering the foster care system remains high despite the provision of services. This may include determinations regarding appropriateness of intervention and decisions regarding case closure. Monitoring child safety um, of children within the prevention context may differ from existing child safety measurement strategies and include coordination with contractors that are implementing evidence-based programs these relationships in measuring and assessing safety are important and should be discussed in the prevention plan. 
Um, next, I'll turn it over to Kara Kelly to discuss tips related for, uh, to continuous monitoring. This area, continuous monitoring, is commonly known as continuous quality improvement, or CQI. Many Title IV agencies will be implementing new programs or services for the first time through their prevention program plans. Hence, an important component in developing a prevention plan includes information as to how the proposed evidence-based programs and services will be implemented into the Title IV agency's existing CQI infrastructure. The technical tips in this area fall into three main categories. The first technical tip in the area of monitoring and implementation is to ensure that information is provided in the plan regarding the implementation strategy for each proposed program or service with special consideration for implementation needs with rural communities, tribal partners, and contractors that may be implementing the evidence-based programs. The second technical tip in this area is to address in the plan how the Title IV agency will ensure fidelity to the practice model for each program or service. In the area of outcomes, the first technical tip is to describe how the agency will determine how CQI outcomes will be achieved. For example, outcomes such as safety, permanency, and well-being, as well as individual and programmatic level outcomes is appropriate. The second tip in this area is to describe mechanisms for gathering, organizing, and tracking information and results over time in the agency's CQI system. This could include information regarding the use of instruments or administrative data, adaptations to the state's SACWA system or CWA system, or coordination with community partners. The final area is the development of a continuous feedback loop. The tip in this area is to provide information in the plan as to how the Title IV agency will use the information learned during CQI in driving change within the organization in order to improve outcomes for children and families. It's important to differentiate CQI from program evaluation as the two are closely related However, each have distinct components and should be differentiated in the prevention plan. Next, I'll describe the evaluation component of the prevention program plan. The requirement of a well-designed and rigorous evaluation falls into two main categories. In the area of a well-designed and rigorous strategy, the first tip is to ensure that the proposed evaluation meets the legislative requirement of well-designed and rigorous, and that the proposed strategy is comprehensive. We'll discuss the components of a well-designed and rigorous evaluation in more detail on the next slide. In the area of evaluation waivers, the tip is to ensure that the Title IV agency requests the waiver of the evaluation requirement only for programs or services that have been rated as well-supported by the Title IV Clearinghouse. Programs with an approved well-supported designation through the independent systematic review process are not eligible for a waiver of the evaluation requirement. Next. For every program or service that the agency submits a waiver for, the plan must provide evidence of the effectiveness of the practice to be compelling. Compelling evidence can include, for instance, a description of how each well-supported program or service has demonstrated effectiveness with the child welfare population in your state or jurisdiction, or information demonstrating that the evidence of effectiveness crosses more than one target domain, such as across child safety and child well-being. It's important to note that continuous monitoring strategies we discussed earlier remain a requirement for each program or service, even if a request to waive the evaluation requirement has been approved. We'll now move on to the evaluation strategy itself. The following area is very brief in the interest of time and provides a high-level overview of some of the important components of an evaluation strategy. In the area of evaluation components, the tip is that the proposed evaluation strategy for each program or service included in the prevention plan should be rigorous and well-designed. But what does that mean? For example, the proposed strategy should include research questions that are specific to each program or service being evaluated. 
these should map to the proposed outcomes of the evaluation. The target population should also be summarized to include information on items such as demographic characteristics or risk factors, eligibility or screening criteria, and information as to why the population was targeted for the evaluation. The proposed research design and methodology is up to the discretion of each individual Title IV agency and should logically map to the proposed research questions and outcomes. The design should be rigorous and provide details as to the type of design proposed. For example, whether a quasi-experimental design or a randomized control trial are proposed. The evaluation design should also include a data collection plan. This plan can include the procedures and protocols to collect and compile data, the intended respondents for each data collection method, and the frequency at which data collection will occur. Information on the sampling strategy should be included as well and provide information on sampling methodology and inclusion and exclusion criteria. In addition, the evaluation plan should also include a data analysis strategy that describes whether quantitative or qualitative data will be used and information regarding the proposed analytic strategies. Finally, the evaluation strategy should clearly articulate the study limitations for each proposed evaluation strategy to include any potential weaknesses or limitations of the selected research design, data collection, or analysis methods. A second important tip in this area is to ensure that the evaluation strategy is aligned from beginning to end, from the proposed research questions to the design, data collection, and analytic strategy. While you're developing your evaluation strategy, we want to encourage you to utilize ACF resources, including the evaluation plan development tip sheet and the program manager's guide to evaluation. Information about these documents will be provided at the end of the webinar. We'll now move on to discussing the independent systematic review process. The independent systematic review process provides a time-limited opportunity for states to claim transitional payments for services and associated costs until the Prevention Services Clearinghouse can review and rate a program or service. The Prevention Services Clearinghouse makes the final determination about whether a program or service is assigned a promising, supported, or well-supported rating. During the development of the independent systematic review, there are several resources available from ACF, including Program Instruction 1906 and the Title IV Clearinghouse Handbook of Standards and Procedures. A list of the approved independent systematic reviews and those currently under review are available on the CD website discussed earlier and are provided here on the slide. In the area of submission and approval, the tip is to ensure that the independent systematic review is submitted as part of a Title IV prevention program plan. The review can only be approved as part of a Title IV agency's prevention plan. Next, we'll talk briefly about the Prevention Services Clearinghouse website. The Title III Prevention Services Clearinghouse website is an excellent resource to obtain information about programs that have been rated by the Title IV Clearinghouse, to access descriptions of programs and services, as well as to obtain information about the review process. The website also has a number of frequently asked questions. The frequently asked questions include the working list of programs and services currently under review. The frequently asked questions list is updated regularly and includes questions regarding reviews, adaptations, and timelines. The Clearinghouse continues to review programs and services, and ratings for new programs and services will be released on a rolling basis. The Prevention Services Clearinghouse recently released another batch of programs and services, so please visit the Clearinghouse website for more information about these new releases. If you're interested in receiving regular updates and activities occurring at the Clearinghouse, you can sign up on the website to receive regular emails regarding updates and activities. 
So we'll go ahead now and turn it over to Tina Nogler, Director of Regional Programs, to discuss the review process for the Title IV Prevention Program Plan. Great, thank you. So this is a great opportunity to share with everyone Children's Bureau's integrated team process for the 4 um, prevention plan. We have a great teaming approach in which the CB Regional Office um, Program Specialist and the CB Central Office Specialist under the OCAN team and the Office of Planning, Research, and Evaluation Specialist all work together as a team to review prevention plan submissions. The teaming approach allows us to utilize all of our expertise to ensure a comprehensive review and a thorough feedback to all of you. So while we have this teaming approach for plan submissions, the regional office remains the main point of contact for jurisdictions working on the prevention plans. So if you have any questions or concerns before or after plan submission, you should always reach out and contact your regional office with any questions you may have. Loud? Okay, louder, sorry. Um, so when you're ready to submit a prevention plan, please submit those through your regional office. And as Utah mentioned, it's really important that communication. We um, do this frequently during the process, and we really want to work closely with all of you on your prevention plan submissions and questions. All right. I'll turn it over to Jerry. Turn it over to me. <laughs> Okay, so we are at the point now where we will uh, take questions and answers uh, for those folks on the line who uh, would like to uh, ask questions. So um, at this time, we have the phone lines muted, but we have uh, gathered questions from the chat function. So if Brenda wouldn't mind starting us off with reading the questions that have been submitted, and then providing a response. Perfect. Great. Thank you. Um, several people have written to ask if they could get copies of our plan, which we have shared widely. Um, you can go on our website, uh, cfsa.dc.gov, and our plan is on there. And if people have questions, we have a place where you can ask um, questions and certainly can reach out to me or members of my team. Um, Someone asked, how does DC envision linking motivational interviewing directly to children on prevention plans as prevention candidates? And um, again, our approach to motivational interviewing is that it's fundamental to case management since it is focused on engaging families um, better, and that is um, something that we all have to do. But our hope is that it gets approved as a um, as a well-supported service for um, that we can use for case management um, claiming purposes. So we will, we're using it for everything, our kids in care as well. Um, there is a, several questions about how to get everyone um, who needs to be at the table to the table. And this is where um, differences in jurisdictions and relationships really come to bear, but I think part of it is um, really helping people to understand that prevention is everybody's responsibility, and if we don't, as jurisdictions and multiple systems, invest in, um, in prevention in a collaborative way, then we're all going to see our kids ending up in the deep ends of the system, which are not good for them, which is not good for any community, and so really helping um, key stakeholders to understand that this is not a 
just a child welfare issue. It's a child and family well-being. And, um, you know, again, that depends on where you start in your particular jurisdiction, but um, that's really, really important um, is, is helping to communicate that. Um, I'm going to bounce the question to you, Cosette, because there are some questions just for Utah and some for both of us. But um, this one says, given that Utah offers extended foster care to age 21 and re-entry into foster care until 21, is Utah considering whether to include older youth in its candidacy definition? Um, we, we limited the candidacy up to age 18. We did not put it up to age 21. And I'll answer that. We, the, um, DC has always had kids until um, age 21. Candidacy for us is under age 18 because you cannot come into foster care. You couldn't be at risk of coming into foster care if you were older than 18. However, we do include um, the children and therefore their parents of children of um, foster youth. So a foster youth who has aged out is a part of a family with a child who is part of our target population. So that was very, very specific, but we think really important. Um, Jose is another question. This is for both of us. I'll bounce it to you first. Um, it's asked about what stage in the planning process was your child welfare policy updated and disseminated to staff? I, I mean, the development of, of it occurred as we went along. We, we, uh, we actually, so we finalized it just shortly before we submitted the plan because the policy did have to be attached to the preprint, the attachment B. So we had finalized the policy um, prior to submission of the plan itself. And then with that had a rollout to our staff um, throughout the state, you know, to, to uh, educate them on the policy itself. Similar to the, the district. Um, another question is um, about engaging um, judges in the courts. I look to David Kelly, who's in the room, <laughs> um, who is always a big advocate for that. I, I will say that we did invite um, our judges to be part of the plan, or um, presiding judge of family court to be part of the planning process. And um, our courts found that they are not, um, they're so interested, I shouldn't say interested, but their jurisdiction is not so much on the prevention side, even though, of course, it is in terms of some of the other um, elements of the act. And um, we, fortunately, the district have very, very few kids in congregate care. So our focus really has been on our front porch and front yard, which does not really come to the attention of our court. So there it's about the kids who are going home and post-permanency kinds of services, if we can shorten um, length of stay by having um, robust services on the back end, that's pretty much where our courts are involved. But Utah may be different. Um, yeah, thanks, Brenda. We did uh, get involved with our court, court improvement program very early on, as soon as the law passed. Um, also, 
of course, participated in some of the strategic planning meetings together in Washington, D.C., um, and we have worked closely with those partners, um, obviously heavier relationship related to QRTP, but they, they did have an interest, and I think particularly because for where if the in-home services clients um, were in child welfare, then there were many cases where we would have court jurisdiction. And so as we developed these, we you know, included those partners in the discussions and in the planning, in the vision, and also in training. We've they invited us to come, and you know, once we got the plan pulled together and the QRTP provisions, we have gone out and um, and done presentations to judges, to guardian ad litems, to parental defense, um, so that they would know what was happening in Utah and would be aware of it. And, and also have opportunities to give feedback as we moved along the way. Also, we, um, where legislation was required, they were involved as well. And this, is, this is David from the Children's Bureau. I, I would just add that um, we've seen uh, in a number of states during our, our visits, um, judges and attorneys for parents and children be very actively involved in discussions around planning and identifying both populations of needs and specific needs within populations. Um, by, by virtue of their, their position on the bench, judges have um, kind of a unique experience to look back over the life of the cases that come before them and see all the missed opportunities and are really, I think, well positioned to help identify um, what might have been helpful to families. And, you know, some of those are very clearly evidence-based services and then others are more community-based supports. Um, so they're, they're useful in whether you choose to do a, a kind of a broader-based planning approach or um, kind of a, a more narrowly tailored one. And there's another question regarding the use of the um, transition grant funds. And um, specifically, the question is how can stakeholders be involved? And it's a great question. In D.C., we back to our planning group. We're bringing them back to the table to help us think about now we have some additional resources. What are some gaps we need to fill in? And so we have our plan and our, our candidate population and the services for those um, target groups. And then we also have our upstream um, prevention um, in DC is in the form of family success centers, but there are lots of other gaps. And so this for us, we see as an opportunity to fill in some gaps and because we believe we assemble the right group of folks around the table representing the right organizations and key stakeholders, they're the ones that will help us to determine what those gaps are. So it's a very exciting time for us in the district because now we can not necessarily go further upstream, but we can um, we can go deeper upstream. Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. did you have any have you all started focusing on the transition? Uh, we have, and I would say it's very similar. I went back to our initial planning group, have been doing more in-depth analysis, looking at um, where are the gaps from our waiver, what what are we, you know, where are we in startup of new services, and how can we help invest these funds to help make it less um, 
difficult for providers to get on board. So what costs can we pick up now over a period of time? But we're, we are still early in the planning to decide exactly where, where we're going to target. Um, but again, think this is a wonderful opportunity. And there's one question about um, the changes that we made to our, uh, our SACWIS systems um, for the client level prevention plan requirements. And um, the question is about integrating, do we integrate into existing case practice documents um, and are therefore requiring caseworkers to complete information for all children, regardless if they are eligible for the 4E prevention program? And for us, I think the answer would be yes, because we have a pretty, um, we were able to have a pretty broad definition for our candidacy population and knowing that um, even if their kids may come in and out of the system or touch the system in different ways. And so we decided that everyone would have the prevention plan. It would be the, the same plan that could track the children. Okay, great. Thank you. Do we have a couple of questions about the clearinghouse? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions uh, was what website was it that we can request to receive email updates? So the preventionservices.appsite.com. Um, learn more. It has a link for you to join our email list. So please, we welcome you to join, and then you will receive email updates. Uh, we have also gotten a few questions about how to recommend a program or service for review. We have an FAQ on the website itself on how to recommend a program or service for review. Um, just as an overview, um, the Clearinghouse uses a inclusive process for this, and so programs and services are identified through public calls on an annual basis. Um, the first public call was in fall of 2019. And then um, the Clearinghouse takes all of those recommendations. I believe we got over 400 unique submissions. Um, so that's even more recommendations, I'm sure, in there. Um, and those are logged and kept by the Clearinghouse. Um, there are also recommendations in response to the 2018 Federal Register Notice and Federal Partners and other key stakeholders, as well as an environmental scan of the literature. Um, just so you know, all of that is kept, and we look at it often. The Clearinghouse looks at it in order to determine who, what programs and services will be reviewed next. You should note that particular consideration is given to programs and services recommended by state and local government administrators um, and rated by other clearinghouses, such as CBC or Home B, recommended by federal partners, and are evaluated as part of any grant supported by the Children's Bureau such as the Title IV Child Welfare Demonstrations or the Regional Partnership Grant. Thanks for those questions. Okay, great. There's one other question for DC and or Utah. Uh, the question is, uh, would you be able to discuss how and or when you began to engage IT staff to discuss system implications and fees? As I said, this is DC. We started a parallel process with um, our implementation work group. So they were pretty much at the table or at another table day one, so early in the process. Yeah, I would say that's true for Utah as well, that we had uh, business analysts from our um, 
our CWIS team participating in the work groups right from the beginning um, so that they would be know the conversations and direction we were going and be able to um, help because the time frame was really short for the for the um, SACWIS or CWIS system programming. Um, so yeah, we involved them right from the start as well. On the slide deck now, you see resources that are available from the Children's Bureau. And just to note that the Children's Bureau has created a specific page for Tango 4 Prevention Plan. On that page, we provide regular updates as to when states have or tribal um, jurisdictions have submitted a plan, as well as submission through the transitional payment TI process. At, at this time, we will just acknowledge that there have been additional questions that have been submitted through the chat box that we will address at a later date. Um, but I wanted to go ahead and turn it over to Jerry Milner for closing comments. Okay. Um once again, uh, we just want to thank everybody for taking the time um, and for having the interest to participate in, in this webinar. It's, um, it's very important for us to be able to uh, have this time with you to uh, share some of our own lessons learned here about how best to support you uh, in your efforts to uh, develop and, and to implement prevention plans that are going to serve our children and our families in the best possible way. So again, I encourage you to listen to part one, where Brenda Donald and Cassette Mills shared their journeys. The two jurisdictions' plans are different in approaches and programs, so it's really informative. Also, check out the episode we produced focused on the Family First Implementation Guide. We chatted with members of some of the organizations who collaborated on creating this dynamic, evolving document meant to support jurisdictions and states as they develop their plans and tries to answer some of the questions that will come up along the way. Now, if you head over to this episode's webpage at uh, childwelfare.gov, we've shared links to many of the resources mentioned during the webinar, including links to both D.C. and Utah's information, along with the Children's Bureau's Title IV-E Prevention Program website, the link to the specific program instruction, that's PI-1809, also links to the Title IV-E Prevention Services Clearinghouse, and the Children's Bureau's page with the status of submitted independent systematic reviews to claim transitional payments. Really important for funding a lot of the programs and the, and the work involved. But a, a big reminder here to check out all of our episodes. You can subscribe to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. We appreciate a, a high review and, and a rating from you to help promote this across the child welfare field. Of course, you can check out Child Welfare Information Gateway at childwelfare.gov for information, tools, contact information, data, and information on laws and policies all surrounding adoption, foster care, and the prevention of child abuse and neglect. Again, please stay safe during this time, and thank you for your tireless work and for being part of our community here on the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families.
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.